we're in Ezekiel 30, I realize the part of our liturgy, the, the secondary standard of chapter 33, and the sermon text is why I chose it. It's obviously subject of judgment. And what we read, if you're not familiar with secondary standards, it's usually how some body of Christians believe the Bible teaches is what it is. It's not extra canonical. It's not the word of man over the word of God. It's what we think the Bible teaches. If you know your Bibles and you read um, Confession of Faith 33, um, paragraph 2, if you know your Bible, every one of those verses is a Bible verse. So I'm familiar with being a little squeamish to secondary standards. I was at one time squeamish to them too. We shouldn't be squeamish to the word of God. So what you read wasn't just the word of some strange English Puritan. Uh, every, every verse was from the Bible. Okay, Ezekiel 30. Ezekiel 30. We'll take the whole chapter, though I think you could le- legitimately make a second sermon uh, from 20 to 36, but I, I won't. I don't want to bog things down. Ezekiel 30, verse 1. Hear God's perfect word. The word of the Lord came to me, Again, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, alas, for the day, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword will come upon Egypt, anguish will be in Ethiopia. When the slain fall in Egypt, they take away her wealth, her foundations are torn down. Ethiopia, Put, Lud, all of Arabia, Libya, and the people of the land that is in league will fall with them by the sword. Thus says the Lord. Indeed, those who support Egypt will fall, and the pride of her power will come down. From Migdal to Syene, they will fall within her by the sword, declares the Lord God. They will be desolate in the midst of the desolated lands. Her cities will be in the midst of her devastated cities, and they will know that I am the Lord. When I set a fire in Egypt, and all her helpers are broken... On that day, messengers will go forth from me in ships to frighten, secure Ethiopia, and anguish will be on them as on the day of Egypt. For behold, it comes. Thus says the Lord God, I will make the hordes of east of Egypt cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the most ruthless of the nations, will be brought in to destroy the land. And they will draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. Moreover, I will make the Nile canals dry. I will sell the land into the hands of evil men. I will make the land desolate and all that is in it. By the hand of strangers, I, the Lord, have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and make the images cease from Memphis. There will no longer be a prince in the land of Egypt. I will put fear in the land of Egypt. I will make Pathros desolate, set a fire in zone, execute judgments on Thebes. I will pour out my wrath on Sin, the stronghold of Egypt. I will also cut off the hordes of Thebes. I will set a fire in Egypt. Sin will writhe in anguish. Thebes will be breached. Memphis will have distresses daily. The young men of On and Pi Beseth will fall by the sword, and the women will go away into captivity. Tephanes, the day will be dark when I break there the yoke bars of Egypt. Then the pride of her power will cease in her. 
A cloud will cover her. Her daughters will go into captivity. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt, and they will know that I am the Lord. In the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Behold, it has not been bound up for healing or wrapped with a bandage, that it may be strong to hold the sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and I will break his arms, both the strong and the broken. I will make the sword fall from his hand. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands. For I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon. I will put my sword into his hand. I will break the arms of Pharaoh so that he will groan before him with the groanings of a wounded man. Thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh will fall. Then they will know that I am the Lord. When I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt, when I scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands, then they will know that I am the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a mighty God. Beside you, there is no other. You're infinitely, perfectly holy. Apart from you, Lord Jesus Christ, we would have no right. It wouldn't be safe for us to even take your name upon our lips. But covered with your blood, Lord Jesus Christ, even as holy as you are, Heavenly Father, we can come into your presence without fear. No longer as these people, offended enemies, offending criminals, but we are your children. Help us see, Holy Father, that not only are you a God of infinite mercy in Christ Jesus, apart from Jesus Christ, you are a God of infinite justice, and it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, uncovered by the blood of the Lamb. May we believe these awful but true things, Lord, that we would treat you as holy and live circumspect and grateful lives. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. The themes are, the book of Ezekiel, they have two two themes running through it. You remember we've kind of divided the book 1 through 24 and 25, at least to 32. Judgment against the Jews, judgment against the Gentiles, and then various Gentiles. We're in the Gentiles section. But within the larger theme of judgment, we've, we've said this before, and I'll bring this out from chapter 29, even regarding Egypt. There's always a golden thread of mercy that God puts in there. There's always a promise somewhere, even if it's even if it's it's brief, that God will save some. You remember the great call of Isaiah, who's writing concerning many of these times. This is regarding the Babylonian captivity. Read Jeremiah. Read Isaiah. Remember Isaiah six. God comes to him in a vision. And he says, here I am, Lord, send me. And then God sends him. And many evangelical churches say this is kind of like a missionary call. I would argue not really a missionary call to the heathen. This is a call to the church. He sends him back to the people of God. And in that, what is it, Isaiah 6, 1 through 10 or something like that? God tells Isaiah, most of the people are not going to believe you. They're not going to believe you. I'm not sending you for, to them, for the bulk of them, to believe you, repent, and, and be saved. That's not the purpose. For the bulk of them, they're going to reject you, and then I'm going to judge them justly, and I'm going to cut them off. 
So it's going to glorify my justice. But then in Isaiah, he says something along the lines of, but I'm going to leave a tenth. I'm going to leave a little stump. That's the remnant. And that little remnant I will save. There's always something of that, even in these judgment passages. Judgment, judgment, judgment on the unbelieving for their sin. They'll be cast into eternal torments for their sin. And then within that, but God will promise, but I've made a way to save some. And even with the Egyptians, as I hope to show. But it's a judgment passage, clear enough. There's no sense in saying that it isn't. I mentioned we're in the Gentile section. Salvation comes to do, I meant to say it this morning, it's from Romans 1, Romans 2. Um, salvation comes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Um, in John chapter 4, round about verse 24, um, Jesus says salvation is of the Jews. So the gospel promise comes to the Jew first and then it goes to the, to the nations. In the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a promise given in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, 17, later in Genesis like 28, and then um, Galatians 3 says clearly this promise, Jesus is the seed. In, in Jesus Christ, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. So salvation, word, Jew first, then Gentile. But also judgment comes to the Jew first, which is what we're seeing even with the scheme, but then to the Gentile. Um, and so now we have judgment to the Gentile. These people are apart from the means of grace, apart from the law and the gospel of Almighty God. In this particular section, we have the denunciation of various Gentilish nations, and now we're in um, the section denouncing Egypt in particular. Egypt is kind of like the master tyrant. Babylon also is the master tyrant, kind of the prototypical anti-Christ, anti-God's people enemy. So when the Apostle Paul says, she who is in Babylon greets you, it's just hearkening back to this anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-holiness, anti-God's people, pro-Satan, enslaver. It's very much like Egypt. When you hear Egypt in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, John on the Isle of Patmos says, where Jesus was crucified, and he says, it's Egypt. It's interesting because he's referring to, to Jerusalem. So he's crucified outside of Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit says, it's Egypt, meaning they're the enemy how the gold had become dim. So we're in this section dealing with the prototypical enemy of God, enemy of God's people. That's what Egypt stands for, real Egypt. They really enslaved the people of God earlier for 430 years. Then God brought them out by a mighty hand. You remember last week, Israel was um, tempted by their own flesh to make an alliance with them so that they went back to the people that had enslaved them and said, you're really going to help us against the Gentile nation of Babylon. And God says, actually, that's not going to happen. They're going to fail and Babylon's going to succeed and you're going into captivity. We mentioned last week, it's always a bad idea uh, for the church to make league with Christ haters, though we do all the time. But we shouldn't if we read our Bibles. So chapter 29, let's see, how many chapters denounce Egypt? Uh, chapter 29, chapter 30, here we have two more after this, 30, 31, and 32. So four full chapters God devotes in this book to specifically speaking a word of judgment against uh, Egypt. He says some other things too, but that's primarily the message. Now within, within these four chapters, um, we see various oracles. Oracle is the old, older, older when I say... 
the, um, the, the prophets were said to have uh, preached rather than prophecies, oracles, earlier on in redemptive history. So in my thinking, sometimes I use the older word. So you have oracles or prophecies, the same idea. And the word of the Lord came to, and then the word of the Lord came to, and then he's going to prophesy. So we have, within these chapters, there are various speeches or sermons or words of the Lord that come in these distinct oracles or prophecies. Let me show you if I can what I mean. Um, the first prophecy given, an oracle given against Egypt is uh, Ezekiel 29, 1 through 16. And that's a clear unit. And then Ezekiel 29, 17 through 21 is another prophecy. And, and the word of the Lord came to, and the word of the Lord came to. In our chapter, I pointed it out. So in 1 through 19, that's one oracle or one prophecy. And then what did we say? Uh, 20 through 26, distinct year, distinct time. God gives another oracle, another prophecy. Let's just try to step back and consider what is God teaching us thematically? Everything in the Bible is there for a meaning. And I, I'm, I'm decidedly not speculative. So I want to see the plain, what's the plain truth. God um, continuously repeats himself uh, in a particular theme to a particular people. I'm going to judge you, Egyptian. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you. We've said this so many times. Um, when you're, yeah, when we repeat ourselves, it's because either the message is intensely important or the recipient is prone to forgetfulness. And both of those things are true. And I was taught early on as a young Christian, I met two older Christians, and I'm just going to say this as an aside. It's not just ministers that can pour into the life of another believer. If you have time and you know Christ and you know some things of Christ and God sends you some young person or some non-young person, you can really help that person out. This is a young Christian. I had two old men. They were retired. They poured into my life. They took time to study the word, to pray with me, to pray for me. And it was tremendously helpful for me. And they got no money by it. They, I never went to their churches, never gave them any money. They get no, no money by it, um, but they get an extra crown in their uh, stone in their crown, I'm, I'm sure. So God is continuously repeating himself because the, the message here is, um, is very important. The more basic thing is with a prophecy, we see it. And the word of the Lord came, and the word of the Lord came, saying such and so, such and so, such and so. God does speak. God, I don't mean in a Pentecostal sense. I spent time in Pentecostalism. We talked about this at lunchtime. And I had friends. I had one friend in particular that would literally say, what's that, Lord? What? You haven't freed me? And we would all think like, wow, he's got a pipeline right to God. But I don't mean in that, beloved. I think that's a dangerous thing. If someone says, what? What's that, God? And God has not revealed himself to you, what does the Bible say should happen to that person? Read the book of Deuteronomy. They should leave the planet. So it's always a bad idea to say, God told me if you're not reading the Bible. But we have the Bible. And God says, this is, what, this is my mind, this is my will, and I'm revealing myself to man. God speaks. For people that walk around and think, well, who, who, who knows? Who, who knows? Religious truth, moral truth, heaven, hell, Jesus, sin. Who knows? You never know. It's just, I don't know. Let's go to books a million. That's not true. We are taught very basically. I mean, we've, we've been hammering the judgment business for a long time, but let's just learn the lesson. God does reveal himself. 
God reveals his will to man, and he reveals his will to man in two ways. One, the way that we're looking at here in Bible, redemptive history, scripture, but let's just back up. If you walk outside, God is revealing himself to you. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 6, deal with natural revelation. Excuse me, Psalm 19, well, Psalm 119 too, but Psalm 19, 1 through 6, and the heavens declare the what? The glory of God. The glory of God. The stars, the moon, the wind, the waves, the seasons, all of that. Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made. You ever look at a human body? How do you think that just happened? Goop happened? No, goop didn't happen. It it shows the, the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, the power of God, all of that. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1. He says everybody knows. The heathen know. And they pervert the knowledge of God, but the heathen knows. So natural revelation is enough to know that there is a God and we're not God. But natural revelation is not sufficient that we should come to know God savingly. That's where scripture comes in. And that's what we're looking at here. So God does reveal himself to man. And we do pervert it. But when you're born again and you look at the sunset, you say, this is my father's world. He made it. Then you you can discern the book of providence better. But the, the book of scripture is God. Genesis 3, Genesis 1, 2, 3, 3.15 onward is God revealing his will for our salvation, the entire book. We're in a judgment book, but it's not, it's not fundamentally, I am going to judge you and damn you. That's not the main purpose. It's not just, hi, I am God, you're holy, and you're, I am holy, and you're unholy, and you'll be damned. There would be no Bible. You would have Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, 1 through 8, and would all be in Sheol. There wouldn't be a Bible. The Bible is redemptive revelation. That's salvific revelation. It's God revealing his will to save sinners through his Savior. That's what this book is all about. And running throughout this book is God is going to draw a people to his Jesus Christ. And the fact that these people are already not in hell, even that is a token of God's grace. So this book, Bible, is redemptive revelation, and it primarily teaches salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the fundamental message. So people study the Bible. If you don't get that message, you have, you, you've missed the whole shoot match. But related to that, Jesus is a savior of sinners. In Jesus, we are saved from our sins. Apart from Jesus, implicit in that truth of in Christ we are saved, is out of Christ we are not saved. So in Jesus, we are saved from our sins before a holy God. Apart from Jesus, we won't see him as a benevolent, merciful Savior. If someone dies apart from Jesus, how will they see Jesus? As a judge. As a judge. And both of those things are connected. I know lots of Christians say, I want to take the Savior Jesus, but I don't want Judge Jesus. You can't make up your own Jesus. I know lots of people do. It's a bad idea. I wouldn't do it. So Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible. And so the Bible shows us in Christ forgiven. Uh, Apart from Christ, you're going to meet him as a judge. And he's a holy judge. And that's what this book is teaching. That God is a holy judge. And apart from faith in this promise to Messiah, you're going to be found in your sins. And God will judge you. And then he says over and over again, and then you'll know that I am the Lord. But it's not a salvific knowledge. This is the Philippians chapter 2 a 1 through 11. You remember, every knee will, will, will bend and every tongue will confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone. 
So that means those who have died in faith, we're going to rejoice doing that. Those who have died apart from faith, you're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then you're going to hear what? Depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. And you will know. So there are no atheists in hell. There are no atheists. The moment a person dies, they're no longer an atheist. And there are no unbelievers. The moment they die, they are believers. They know exactly who Jesus is. If you die in Christ, you're happy. If you die apart from Christ, you're infinitely terrified. So the text tells us, the book teaches us, that God does reveal himself. And God wants to be known. This is the mystery. The God of heaven and earth wants us to be known. And this is the gospel. The God of heaven and earth, even in a judgment passage, he's using it um, in part to warn the unbeliever, but to comfort the believer and to drive the unbeliever uh, to believe. Um, it, it shows us that God wants to save, even when he means to um, judge the unbelieving. So God here is revealing himself. Um, these four jap- chapters, as I say, are primarily judgment against Egypt. I have people in my family, you might have people in your family that say, um, I don't believe in a God of judgment, that's not my God. Um, I know that's not your God, that's why you're an unbeliever, and I'm going to pray for you. Um, The God of the Bible does judge. And what's the cross all about? When Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If that's not judgment, what is it? It's Jesus taking the wrath and taking the curse. In Jesus, he's our curse bearer. Apart from Jesus, these Egyptians will be their own curse bearer. So now, again, we're trying to just discern some new things each chapter as we consider the business of judgment. And I don't think we've brought this out. When we're looking at judgment passages, not only do we, sh- do we learn that God is a God that makes himself known, that wants to be known, both as Savior and those apart from me as a judge, when you read a, a passage that deals with judgment, it reveals some of the attributes of God. Um, I've just referenced it. We can't pick and choose attributes of God or of Christ that we like. People do all the time. Um, They take the 1 John 4, 1 through 10, God is love, and that's it. Well, throw in 1 John chapter 3, God is love seen in the cross, and I agree with you. Jesus taking wrath is God's love to people that deserve wrath, but they they don't play fair. But, but you can't pick and choose the attributes of God. When you look at a judgment passage, like what we're looking at here, God says, I'm going to judge um, Egypt. And, and he uses two figures for judgment, fire and sword. Fire and sword. It runs throughout the whole passage. It shows us certain attributes of God. And when I say God, I only mean the God of heaven and earth. There's only one God. I, I, you can go to my wife's country. You can go to this country. You can go... There are lots of people have lots of different gods. But the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, there's no other God. The book of Isaiah says, there's no other Lord beside me. I, the Lord, am God. There's no other God. Only the God of the Bible. And I'm going to say something, and I don't want to get off on a, a rabbit trail. So these all, all these other gods, is it just the God of the Bible with a different name, like an Arabic name? No, no. It's a false god. If you look at their attributes, look at the god that I just referenced. One of the major tenets of that religion is God does not beget. God has no son. They actually put it on one of their mosques. God has no son. So you can't tell me a god with different attributes is the same god of the Bible with a different name. It's not true. And so when we say the attributes of God, we mean the god of the Bible. And the god of the Bible is the only god, the only true and living god. I know that's narrow, but the Bible says it. 
Shema O Israel, the Lord thy God is what? One. There's one God. And so here God says, this is who I am. And now when he says, I'm going to judge you Egyptians. Remember he said to the Moabites, the Ammonites. He said to the Phoenicians, uh, in Tyre and Sidon, I am going to judge you. God is revealing some of his qualities or his nature or his attributes. It's not like he's 50% holiness, 50% love or 25% love and 25% mercy. You can't subdivide God. He's infinitely perfect in his justice. He's infinitely perfect in his, his love. He, I don't even, you, you can't really quantify it. But when we're looking at him judging, bringing the sword in the fire, um, he's revealing a couple of things about himself. And I want to touch on two. The holiness of God and the justice of God. And this is something the world certainly doesn't believe. The Egyptians didn't believe. They do believe it now. And our world does not believe it. I'm 58. Um, if you asked me, I don't know. I mentioned the Cape Cod this morning. If you asked me when I was a kid on Cape Cod that I could go look around, and if I even understood what the internet was, which of course I didn't until um, someone created it, a former president, uh, president wannabe, um, uh, that you could see various things, the things that you could see. I would, I would never believe it. I, I would never believe boys would marry boys. I would never believe girls would marry. I would never believe a girl could turn herself into a cat and a cat could turn herself into a dog. I would never believe it, ever. My grandchildren are going to grow up in an age and they're going to consider as normative something that my mind is completely blown by. Completely blown by. And one of the, the reasons that is, is the people of our land, as much as I love it, they don't comprehend the holiness of God. They don't believe God is holy. One, they say they don't believe in God or they believe in the God of their own understanding and then they make up their own God. The problem with a made-up God is it's a made-up God. The God of the Bible is holy and there's two concepts with the holiness of God. It's the transcendence nature and the purity nature. Transcendence is he's other. He's, we, 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 even professing Christians treat God like he's just like your doddering old grandfather. He's just like a cut above man. He's just like the Greek myth gods. They're just powerful men. And they could just do stuff that we can't do. That's not God. God is the great I am. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. He's utterly independent. The aseity of God. He, he, he's, he's other. And then the purity aspect is, is, is plays out. When God says, I am holy. You remember Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And the angels are flying. Holy angels who never left their first estate. This is a mind blower. People that live like sodomites and like filthy sin think they're walking into the presence of a holy God and saying, what's up, pal? Oh, no, 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 no. Read this chapter. Read this chapter. I'm going to crush all of your idols. I'm going to bring the sword. I'm going to bring the fire. Why? Because I am holy and you are not. That's the God of the Bible. And I know this is what Pastor John, are you kind of channeling Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God? No, I'm not feeling very feisty, but sinners in the hands of an angry God is spot on. And why is God angry with sinners? Because they're sinners. And he's holy. He's not just this killjoy. He's holy. And he hates sin. And he loves purity. And this is something, I don't even have the words to convey the intensity of it. 
We don't even, even as true believers, we don't even really grasp the holiness of God as it is. If Jesus was here right now, well, he is in his spirit, but if he was here and we could see him in his glorious holiness, what would every last one of us be doing? I would not be moving my lips. You all would not be moving your lips. We'd all be on the ground before the holiness of God. So when God says, I am going to judge, it reveals the holiness of God. That's why people think they're going to heaven and they're living unholy lives because their God is an unholy God. It's not that he's more loving. It's that he's, he's less holy. And then the second thing that we learn about God's attributes, and it's related to the holiness, he's righteous. And the righteous idea is a legal term. It's in reference to the law of God. And this is another thing. Christians think they can make up a God who's not only, he's not holy, and they think, well, the law was something that he doesn't ever do anymore, and gospel means no law. Just read, go away and read the Bible, and don't go around anyone, and then read the Bible. Jesus on the cross, my God, my God. What does it say? Galatians chapter 3. He became a curse, a, a curse lawbreaker. He took our law breaking. He was never actually a, a personal lawbreaker, but he was a substitute lawbreaker. He died because of the broken law was exacted upon him. So don't stop your ears. When God brings judgment upon the Egyptians, upon unbelievers, sinners, it will be for their sin. And what is sin? What is it? 1 John 3, 8. Sin is lawlessness is lawlessness. The standard for holiness, righteousness, is the law of God. And God says to these Egyptians, you are lawbreakers. And we've seen a number of laws that they've broken. Number one is they worship false gods. Human beings think the worst commandments that you can break. We don't really, but we, if we're going to, if we're going to quantify them or qualify them, we think commandment five through 10 is the worst commandment to break. Man sinning against other men. Oh no. No, if the greatest commandment is to love God and the second greatest is to love man, then the greatest sin is to abuse God. We don't think so. Steal my wife, that's bad. Kill my cat, that would be bad. Steal my stuff, that's really bad. Curse Jesus' name, have a false God on all these false gods. Yeah, that's nothing. That's like a personal choice. And God says, well, here's one. Let's just choose the sin of having another God an idol. I'm going to judge you for that. Will God judge idolaters for breaking the second, the first and the second, the third and the fourth commandments? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. He says it. And so we've seen in the judgment of God, he's revealing himself. There really is a God. He really is a judge. This particular, this whole set of prophecies, which is why we read um, chapter 33, it's pointing forwards to Judgment Day. This is another thing that the church doesn't believe. We don't believe God is holy. We don't believe that God is righteous. And we don't believe in Judgment Day. It's just kind of this nebulous, I said yes to Jesus when I was six, and everything's great, and I just live the way I want, and I'm going to go to heaven when I die because it's justification by death. This is not true, beloved. This is not Christianity. It's not justification by death. Everybody wants to put everybody they love in heaven because they're dead. But that's not how it works. 
That's not how it works. There's a real judgment day. And we're going to meet the judge. Either we're in Christ and we've been forgiven. He's taken the judgment or we're an Egyptian. We take the judgment. And so when people say, oh, don't let Pastor John, he's just in a time warp. Don't let him scare you with judgment day. You better be scared. (laughs) You better be scared. And then we should be very thankful because Jesus is the one that has taken that judgment day for us. But if we don't have that taken for us, we're going to take it. We will take it. There really is a day. It was the Apostle Paul when he was preaching to Athens. Super Apostle Paul writes what? 13, 14 of the epistles. The, the guy is the greatest Christian ever. And he's preaching to geniuses in, in Athens. And what does he say to geniuses? God has appointed a day for judgment. And Jesus is going to judge you. And what did they say to him? Manana, manana, we'll hear you later. Does saying manana get you away from judgment day? No. So this is a picture of judgment day. God is, God is, God is holy. God is righteous. God is judged. There's coming a day. So he, he, he uses that. We have these time indicators. Um, almost at the head of every oracle, he gives a time indicator. And you remember, if you know the book of Ezekiel or you've been with us, the time indicators are in reference to captivity. In the 10th year, 10th year of captivity. In the 11th year, the 11th year of captivity. So amount of years you've been a slave and amount of years obviously left to go before you're liberated back to Babylon. We've said before, the time indicators um, indicate the historicity or the truthfulness of this account. This really happened. Ezekiel's writing it down. And Judgment Day is really going to happen. He really delivered this. These Egyptians really heard it. And so those are those markers. The other thing that I pointed out perhaps at the beginning, when we have at the head of every oracle, um, the word of the Lord came, and thus saith the Lord. We have an author indicator. You have the time indicator. You have the author indicator. And this gets me back to the kind of the idea that I've been weaving along there are lots of things in the Bible that Christians debate all over the place. I can't wait till we don't debate anything anymore, but that's going to be in heaven. This is the word of God. This isn't the word of a me. <laughs> it's not the word of the OPC. It's not the word of Presbyterians. It's not the word of Puritans. It's not even ultimately Ezekiel's word. And the word of the Lord came. This is God's word. And so when we come here, the only way that we benefit from this book is if we believe it's the word of God. I know because I've done it. You can do a Bible. You can read your Bible in the morning like you're reading the ingredients on a can of corn. You really can. Can you not? I've done, I do it all the time. You can pray like you're looking out the window at a bird. Like God is good. God is great. Let us thank for this food. There's no heart. There's no nothing. If you read this, yeah, mm, interesting. Thus saith the Lord, yeah, judgment, sin, mm, interesting, corn, yeah, corn. What? Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. So what I'm getting at is just this. For the person that goes, hmm, interesting, judgment, hmm, yeah, I've got to fix my clutch. What time is it? You, you're not going to benefit by this. There's no benefit. But for the person who says, the God of heaven and earth is actually speaking to me. And I'm going to listen. I'll listen to the judgment, and then I'm going to listen to the to the call of mercy. The better part of the world doesn't have faith. Faith, faith is a gift of God. Faith is the most precious thing. People say health is precious. Health is precious. Believe me, 
You start losing your health, it's a real bummer. But health isn't the most precious thing in the world. Um, you, you can have a broken body, and if you, you, you have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a rich human being. You really are. Because you're going to get a perfect body when you leave here anyways. Um, we need to receive the words of judgment. We need to receive the words of mercy in, in faith. Um, I, I guess I don't want to... We, we've, we've spoken a great deal about the judgment of God upon these people. These are the prototypical enslavers of God's people. Um, they're tyrants. They are against um, the people of God. A, a couple of things that, to, to point out. You see, what do we have? Like five, six, seven other, other nations. These are smaller nations that are in confederacy or league with Egypt. They fight with Egypt and against Egypt's enemies. God says to Egypt, I'm going to destroy you. Then God turns to uh, Ethiopia, put Libya, all these other countries that are in league with Egypt. And he says, what to them? And I'm going to destroy you. And here's the point. God says to the greatest enemy on the planet, I'm going to put you down. And God says to all of these smaller enemies that help make up the power of the great enemy, and I'm going to put every last one of you down. And then God essentially, we've been saying this every week, says to his people, and I'm going to keep you safe. No one's going to snatch you from my hand. There's no, I, I quoted it, I quoted it all the time from Isaiah. No weapon formed against the church, no weapon formed against a true believer will prosper. None. Not the Egyptians, not the Babylonians, not the Persians, not the Medes. God brings them up and God knocks them down and then he keeps his people. And that's what this, this is about. God is speaking one to Egypt, Egypt saying judgment's coming. But this is primarily meant for the comfort of his people. Look at the two great enslavers, Egypt. He actually uses Babylon to destroy Egypt and then later he's going to destroy Babylon and keep his people. I'm not the only one, beloved. We, we live through life and we go from fear to faith, fear to faith, fear to faith, fear to faith. This is the common lot of all believers. Fear to faith, fear to faith. And if you meet a person that says, I, I just live in the faith realm, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to tell you what I think. It's fear to faith. God is going to liberate us. Woe is us. God is going to liberate us. Woe is us. He raises up one nation. He puts one down. He raises up another enemy. He puts him down. This is training time. The Puritans would say we live in the school of Christ. That fear to faith business keeps us on our knees. It keeps us in the Bible. It, and he says it here. You're not going to trust in the Egyptians anymore. Why? Because you're going to look around and I would have put them down. We are so tempted to look at the worldling, the powerful, the rich. They're the help of the church. And then God shows them that they're nothing. And then we look and say, wow, they're not the hope of the, the church. Christ is the hope of the church. And I want to say this in quick. In reference to uh, Egypt, as I've mentioned, God is promising to save his people. But there's another thing here that I wanted to bring in from last week. So God has a word of denunciation against, against Egypt, as I've been saying all along. Um, but there's something else that I want to bring, bring out. If I can find it in my notes. I hope I can. Ah, I can. You remember from last week, God says, because I want to end on a good note. You remember from last week, God says to the Egyptians, I'm going to destroy you, scatter you to the nations. You remember how many years? 40. 
and then I'm going to bring you back. Beloved, when you read the Bible with your mercy lenses on, with your Jesus lenses on, what's that? The wages of sin deserves what? Death. But God says, I'm going to keep some of you alive. What do you call that? You call that mercy. So these Egyptians deserve death. He preserves a remnant alive. And you know what he's going to do with a remnant of Egyptians? He's going to save them in Jesus Christ and join them to the church. We call that mercy. And I'm going to read that to you. This is a promise to these God-hating, Israelite-hating, antichrist, sin-loving, Satan-serving Egyptians. This is a promise of God. On those that don't receive justice, God means to give them mercy. Isaiah 19, and then I'm going to quit. Thus the Lord God will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And this is savingly. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord. He will respond to them. He will heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will come into Egypt. The Egyptians into Assyria. Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And that day... Israel will be in the third part with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, in Israel, my inheritance, and in Jesus Christ. Egyptians that deserve damnation, Assyrians that deserve damnation, Irishmen that deserve damnation, in Jesus Christ, every tribe, every tongue, Every people, every nation are the Israel of God. Amen? May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.